Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with John Morris of the Associated Builders and Contractors. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for being here. John, before we get started, let me tell everyone who's going to be on the show uh, next week after you. We're going to have uh, Alan Bernstein from B&B Riverboats and then Ryan Mitten from Ultimate Jet Charters. Uh, they're the guys flying the uh, charter jets out of uh, Lunkin Airport. Airport. Uh, Charter jets and river boats, and they're stuck with builders and contractors today. I tell you what, I don't know if I can keep up with that, but I'll try. It's easy. <laughs> You're coming after the accountant. Oh, well. So this has got to be an exciting show. We're, we're heading in the right direction with these shows, Mike. Yeah, even though tax day is coming up. <laughs> uh, let me tell uh, everyone a little bit about uh, John's background. John, if I do this wrong or screw it up, you, uh, I'll jump right in. Jump right in, okay. John became uh, president of the Ohio Valley chapter of the Associated Buildings and Contractors and Ohio Valley Construction Education Foundation in uh, 2001. John's been focused on the growth of the construction industry through advocating free market principles, outstanding craft training, and commitment to satisfy safety for all workers. Uh, safety is a big concern. Absolutely. Uh, one of our uh, earlier guests, guests was Scott T.P. Jr. from uh, Proactive Safety. Proactive is one of our member companies. Are they? Absolutely. How interesting. He didn't tell me about you. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, now i got to call Scott up. Call Scott, yeah. Uh, prior to joining uh, OVABC and OVCEF, oh, gee, you got to love the acronyms in every industry, no, don't you? No, I hate acronyms. I teach my people in sales training, never use buzzwords and acronyms. But we've already said that they're the Ohio Builders and Contractors Association. Okay. Uh, John was an economics professor at the University of Cincinnati, where he focused on finding new methods to teach personal finance, economics, entrepreneurship. You did that in grades K through 12? Yeah, what we did was I ran a specialty outreach program that was training teachers how to integrate economics and personal finance into the regular curriculum because, as the schools will tell us, there's no time in the classroom to add anything. So we tried to teach them how to integrate economics, personal finance into math, into English, into social studies. So it didn't add time to the add a burden. It just made the, the day more economical. Hmm. Okay. It was that's a lot of fun. That's interesting. How long did you do that, John? It's about six years. Okay. John was named Rookie of the Year by the National Council for Economic Education and received the uh, Levy Award for Excellence in Private Education. Got that right? Levy, right. Levy Award. Levy. For, for Private Enterprise Education. Uh, okay. It's close enough. That's all right. He authored and successfully lobbied for legislation which now mandates 100% of high school students in Ohio receive personal finance education as a graduation requirement. That's a good requirement. Well, you know, unfortunately, we're in a situation now where we can't guarantee success, but we can guarantee that everybody's going to have an opportunity to get a loan. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we want to try to do is teach those folks how to get those things paid back so we won't be out of this economic mess. So in addition to all this, you were a high school principal in the Cincinnati public schools? I was for three years. Which high school? It was a specialty school that they started with a, with a grant from the Gates Foundation called the Entrepreneurship High School. Mm -hmm. Taught kids how to own and operate their own business. It was was a very successful model. And some of your listeners might be familiar with in Cincinnati, the Cristo Ray School is a brand Definitely. new brand new Jesuit school. The Cristo Ray School and my school were actually 
the original Crystal Way School in Chicago and my entrepreneurship school in Cincinnati were started at the same time, and we actually worked with the original founders of the original Crystal Ray School. Ultimately, my school uh, rolled into another school in Cincinnati Public, and they brought a Crystal Ray model into Cincinnati. So they're very similar in their goals. Right. Uh, Crystal Ray is the one that puts the high school students to work. Yeah. They go to school four days a week. One day a week they have an internship in in some sort of capacity, either with a not-for-profit or a for-profit entity. It's a really neat model. Yeah, I thought it was really good. The uh, head of Crystal Ray was uh, at one of our downtown Rotary meetings uh, a couple of months ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, John's been a lifetime entrepreneur and owned and operated and sold numerous companies. How many companies? I lost count. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I started my first business when I was 12 years old. Uh, I was running a successful paint contracting business when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, sold that business when I graduated. Uh, went to college, started another business while I was in college, sold that business. Uh, ultimately spent most of my career, and what brought me back to the Associated Builders and Contractors was I spent most of my professional career as a as an electrical contractor. So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about my educational background, but for most of my adult life, I was a contractor, and that's uh, a lot of fun. So I, I sold both of those companies in 2000, got into education, and now I'm back in the industry representing existing owners and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess uh, for some electrical contractors, uh, all the mechanical contractors uh, the last few years have been a little bit tough. The contracting business is always tough, but the, the last few years with economic downturn has been a challenge for all of us, and contractors are, have not been excluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were a national sales manager for a manufacturer? Mm-hmm. Manufacturing company out of Hamilton, Ohio, Connector Manufacturing. We, uh, I worked for a utility company, Dayton Power & Light, for a couple of years in my lone corporate job that I just didn't fit the corporate mold. You know, those of us who are entrepreneurial sometimes struggle with the the uh, the barriers to uh, opportunity and change that mm-hmm. a lot of the corporate uh, jobs put us in. So I worked there for a couple of years, but quickly broke out and went to work for a small manufacturing company looking to sell products back to utility companies. So my time as a guy on the road, three weeks out of every four, I was in a hotel somewhere. <laughs> Like a manufacturer's rep. Absolutely. Someplace in there you also ran a swimming pool company? Yeah, I sold and installed swimming pools when I was in in college. It was a lot of fun. Got a very career, one of the more varied careers. We, I thought we had a serial entrepreneur in, on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mark Schmidt, where he's uh, built four, five companies. Right. You've got him beat by a couple. Well. Probably not as successful as some of his, but yeah, I bounced around and had a lot of fun doing it. So, well, if you're not having fun while you're doing it, absolutely. Why, well, why are you doing it? Uh, you're married. You have a couple of kids, three kids, three children, and now you coach youth basketball. Yep, love the basketball. Kids do. <laughs> Too old to play anymore, but I love coaching the kids. So, that's the easy side of it. Sometimes. Why don't you tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about uh, the Building uh, Contractors Association that you're head of? Yeah, the Associated Builders and Contractors is a national trade association. I'm president of the local chapter. There are 74 chapters in the nation, and we represent building contractors of all shapes and sizes, predominantly in the commercial industrial business. So some of your listeners might be more familiar with the name the Home Builders Association, Mm-hmm. Home Builders Association represents builders of residential homes. We're the equivalent of that for your commercial industrial builders. So we represent big firms like Messer and Miller Valentine, uh, Danis and Ferguson Construction, all the way down to your small independent electrical contractors, uh, mechanical contractors, some people in the service business. We represent all trades, all shapes and sizes. Hmm. So uh, John Westheimer would be one of your members. They, he should be one of my members if he's not. No, I don't know. <laughs> he was on the show a couple of months ago. Cincinnati Commercial Contracting is a wonderful organization, and, and I know John well. Good, good. Um, how did you wind up from all these entrepreneurial uh, businesses to go uh, to work as a director in an association? Well, you know, it's 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 been interesting moving around. As you pointed out earlier, one goal everyone should have is to really enjoy their work. And being entrepreneurial is, is 
something I've always been. You know, entrepreneurs have that unique set of sunglasses where they always see opportunity. And so I've taken advantage of some of those opportunities to start a variety of businesses. One thing I found is, is I always wanted to be challenged. I always wanted to find the next place where I could accomplish something and feel good about the nature of my work. And so that bounced around from being a, a painter to being a swimming pool installer to selling uh, mechanical lugs and electrical connectors and and all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I, I started a, a very successful electrical contracting company. Uh, that worked very well for me. I was on the, the precipice of the green movement, mm-hmm. uh, sold a lot of electrical motors and drives and energy-efficient systems. Um, at the time, I also started a... Uh, residential company, residential electrical company, because a lot of my customers were coming back to me saying, hey, John, your company did great work for me commercially. Could you do some work on my house? And I would always say no, and I would always say no. Well, after three or four years of saying no, I finally started to say yes. And that company grew and was successful, and I had some partners there. Then, like many people in the late 1990s, I uh, started an Internet-based business, Mm -hmm. and uh, I started a company called FreeElectricalEstimates.com. was one of... uh, as many entrepreneurs will tell you, for every success, everybody's got a, a good epic failure story, and that was one one of my epic fails. Um, just was so excited about the Internet taking off and everybody painting these new models that I went and created something and dumped a whole lot of money into something that the business model just didn't work. Um, mm. There was a reason why uh, people can't get estimates, and uh, the model didn't work. So I had these three companies running concurrently, two very successful, one floundering. And I looked around and I said, there's just not enough of one person to do three different things at once. So I listed a couple of companies to to sell. Uh, The successful ones, turns out I got buyers for both. Uh, That left me in a position to either dedicate myself to something that was failing or Mm -hmm. try something else. Turned out I, I ended up with an opportunity to get an education, spent some time in Cincinnati Public, working for the university, loved both of those. Um, but in, after six years at the university, I talked a little bit uh, earlier about the corporate nature. Well, as you can imagine, the University of Cincinnati is a big corporation with a lot of politics and a lot of, of slow-moving parts. And uh, we were real entrepreneurial for a while, but uh, after a while, uh, I needed to, to find my next challenge. And Associated Builders and Contractors is a great land for me because I represent where I came from, contractors, uh, but we also run a trade school, and that's what the Ohio Valley Construction Education Foundation is. It's an organization that trains uh, apprentices in plumbing and electrical and mechanical. So we're operating a school the same time I'm out there legislating and and lobbying for for good conditions for the working man. So it's, it's everything I want in a position now. It's a lot of fun. So when people come out of the school, does that automatically put them in a union, or can they go the other way as independents? No, we actually uh, Associated Builders and Contractors represents the merit shop companies, the, the the companies who choose not to participate in organized labor. So, your the union side of of the commercial industrial industry has their own training programs. We operate all the duplicate programs for the merit shop, the non-union company. Okay, yeah, I really like that uh, that name, Merit Shop. Right. Yeah, the basic idea is, you know, typically in a union environment, you're going to be rewarded on your seniority, how long you're there. Mm-hmm. You're the first one in, you're going to be the first one in line every time. A Merit Shop company operates a little differently. They're going to bring you in, and if you're the best worker, well, we're going to pay you what you're worth as quickly as possible. What's exciting about, you know, participating in the Construction Education Foundation and our apprenticeship program is, Literally, you could get through an entire year's worth of training in half the time that you would do it in the in the union-based model because all you've got to do is document and prove to me that you can get the work done. So our, mm. some of our students come in, and they might take them two to three years because we're merit-based. I'm not going to advance you to, to year two just because you sat in a seat for a year. I'm going to advance you when you prove to me you can do the job. And for some, they do that very quickly, and they advance very rapidly. Plus, in the merit shop, there's a pathway to ownership. Typically, under the union model, it's much harder to, be, to become a, become a, ultimately an owner of a company uh, because they don't introduce you as part of apprenticeship to management, uh, managing others, supervisory techniques. We build all that into our programming. So we think it's a better model, uh, but it's, it's an alternative model, and there's great reasons to choose one over the other. Mm-hmm. How many students do you have right now in your 
uh, merit-based model. We have about 260 apprentices across mm-hmm. 13 trades uh, in various stages because there's two things that go hand-in-hand with apprenticeship. There's the classroom technical-based portion of the job, and then there's the on-the-job documenting and proving that you can get the work done part of it. Mm-hmm. And so there's 8,000 hours of on-the-job training. Could be four years, mm-hmm. 2,000 times four. Right. Uh, but for, for others, it takes a little longer. Uh, some people, you know, work overtime, get more hours in quicker. Uh, the, there's also the, the four levels of technical training. And as I indicated in the old days, uh, prior to streamlining and getting some online curriculum, you had to actually sit in a classroom for four years. Well, now we've taken our technical training to an online environment. If you can get through that, that training at your own pace much faster, take the documented test and prove to me you can do the work, you can get it done even faster. Hmm. So you have a learning mon- management system involved. We have a complete learning management system that introduces us to all our trades are online, plus it has access to over 400 online courses and everything from diversity to customer service skills to technical skills like Microsoft Office. So we, uh, what's great about it is we've got a lot of these candidates that come to us. They're here to be an electrician. They're here to be a plumber. They're here to work in the mechanical trades. And oh, while they're there, they want to improve themselves professionally, and so they just go out and grab all these other things that are right in front of them. Great. Uh, we're going to take a, uh, a short break here, and uh, let's listen to a conversation with Tom Manning talking about his marketing program that he's going to be putting on with me here uh, in April, May, and June. Mike, I'm so excited because we're finally going to give the medium-sized company, companies between $1 million and $20 million in revenue, the marketing and sales strategy that they've been looking for and needing for years. We're going to help them do it in just three days. Day one is going to be talking about sales and marketing strategy. Day two is tactics. Day three are action plans, helping you figure out how to get it done. And at a bargain price, too. I don't know about you, Mike, but I normally charge $5,000 for a marketing plan. How much do you charge for a good sales plan? It's not unusual to see figures like ten dollars or $15,000. Exactly. Well, because this is invitation-only, private, hands-on workshop that we are doing for business owners and presidents and CEOs, that we are actually limiting the participation to just 25 companies and they're going to bring their existing marketing and sales materials with them. Then we're going to show them how to improve their marketing and sales strategies, tactics, and action plans over the three days. And it's only going to cost less than $2,000. And that's including breakfast, lunch, and our personal consulting and coaching. I think it's a pretty good bargain, don't you? Excellent. Well, and to make it even easier for business owners to make it, we actually have spread the sessions out over three different months. So last Wednesday, April, May, and June. Tom, how do they find out about it? Go to marketleaders.us. Marketleaders.us is that simple. It's that simple. Go there, and we explain all the different sessions and break it down for you. And that's where you can go to register, sign up. First one starts April 24th. Wednesday, next one is Wednesday, May 29th. And the last one is Wednesday, June 26th. After all three days, you're going to have an outline for your whole marketing and sales strategy for 2013. Tom, what should they do if they can't make one of those dates? No problem. If you can't make one of the dates, just call me directly and we'll make some special arrangements. You can reach me at 614-622-1047. Thanks, Tom. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with John Morris. John, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you after the show? After the show, you can reach us, uh, contact us through www.ovabc.org. That's Ohio Valley Associated Builders and Contractors. So shorten it up, ovabc.org. ovabc.org. And if they're one of a call, if you want to give me a call, area code 513-381-2220. It's our Cincinnati office, 513-381-2220. So how many members do you actually have? The Ohio Valley chapter represents about 300 member companies, and for those of you who are in the region or listening geographically, we cover northern Kentucky, southeast Indiana, and Cincinnati, so we call that the Cincinnati tri-state area, flowing along I-75 north all the way to Lima, Ohio. There are three chapters in Ohio, 74 chapters in the nation, representing about 25,000 commercial industrial contractors. So wherever you may be listening, if you're in the 
United States, even in Alaska and Hawaii, we have member companies that are ready to build something for you. Good. And I'm glad to see you went to a large statistical metropolitan area as opposed to cutting the area in half along the Ohio River. Right. Yeah, we, tr- we try to look at metropolitan areas. Some of our chapters are, are quite unique. Over in the, the Maryland area, we have you know four chapters in a smaller geographic region, but there's a greater concentration of contractors. Uh, here, you know, we're more regionally based, so we, we try to make good, smart decisions. So we sliced Ohio into three pieces, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland. And uh, Cleveland takes Toledo, and Columbus goes down to southeast Ohio, and we pretty much took the 75 corridor straight up north. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, what percentage of the uh, contractors are, are members of your association? Oh. If they're not union shops. Well, the first thing is the interesting statistic we always ask, and Mike, I'll challenge you. It's your show. I'm going to mm-hmm. put you right on the spot. What percentage of contractors in the commercial industrial business are merit shop or non-union? Mm. In this marketplace, um, by by shop count, I, w- I would bet that it's uh, 75%. That's a wonderful answer. Congratulations. You're, you're definitely much closer to the real answer. The layperson will probably say, the opposite of what you just said. Most really? pe- most people believe if you just ask a layperson off the street, and maybe some of your listeners are probably surprised that you threw out a number seventy five, because most people will typically say eighty to ninety percent are union, hmm. because there's this perception that everything built, you know, your stadiums, your roads, your bridges, your uh, tall buildings, your schools are all done with union labor, and actually only fourteen percent. Fourteen percent. Fourteen percent of the of the construction industry is union labor. Uh, so we represent uh, about three hundred companies, uh, but that's a very small percentage of the total companies that are merit shop. Um, we have to go out there and prove our value proposition. It's no different than a chamber of commerce or your local Rotary Club. They're out there positioning themselves and representing the entire community but not the entire community participates. So in this marketplace, we have about 10 to 15% of the potential contractors who could be our members, who are our members. Mm-hmm. Some of them choose to participate in other specialized associations. There's a specific association for plumbers. There's the independent electrical contractors. Yeah, we did the Plumbers Association a few weeks ago. Sure. We did that convention. I was absolutely amazed at the number of display toilets they had. <laughs> amazing how many different uh, toilets are available and that's one of our challenges is specifications you know working with owners uh, you know we've got building and manufacturers reps that are out there listening to us now they they know the challenge of their job just you know people think everything out there is a commodity well there's a lot of specialization in a lot of different areas and outlets and outlet covers and and roofing and roofing products it's not as simple as just saying hey build me a building there's a spec for everything Mm-hmm. And making it all work together. Correct. And what we do as a value proposition is, is try to build that bridge between the contractor, the architect, the engineer, the owner, the specifier, and create a good team so that ultimately you can get a really good economical project built at a good price. Mm-hmm. Is it important to uh, recruit more member companies into your association? Oh, absolutely. We're recruiting new members every day. The larger the association, the greater the power, the greater the advocacy, because when I'm working with a legislator who's got a piece of legislation that we know that will definitely provide a big negative impact on our industry, one of their first questions is, well, how many companies do you represent? And if I can say I've got 500 paying members or 1,000 paying members, that carries a little more weight with that legislator than if I can only say, well, I represent 26 companies. Mm. So well, you represent, what, 300? Correct. Even that's a big number. Yeah. And we have a larger percentages in some of the larger players in the market. So, you know, when you talk about the largest uh, companies, we represent the majority of them. It's the small to medium-sized contractor who has who uh, it's a harder value sell for me to get them to, to pay that check when a lot of them believe that, that I don't provide a, a strong enough value proposition to, to get their business, and that's where I have to sell every day. What What is the value proposition? Well, we do three things. We help our members win work. We help them increase their productivity and enhance their profitability. And we do that through advocacy, training, and discount programs. 
And so that's the value proposition. And, and I challenge any contractor out there that I can't get them their money back many times over for what the membership fee is. And honestly, I'll tell you, if I can't deliver upon my promises, if we can't, then I don't want you as a member. Because what we tell our members and as they come on board is, don't write me a check for one reason. Write me a check because I've justified my value to you. Because if I don't deliver that value, then you won't write me a second check, and you'll pay five. Or, you'll tell five or six other people why you're not a member anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great value proposition. I wish some of the organizations I belong to had a payback. That's right. That's what we look for every day. We we want to justify that check. Mm-hmm. And so, how many new prospective members do you guys talk to a month? We look to fill a prospect list. We basically look for a, a three-fold system. We classify all of our prospects in, in three, four pots. We have our hot list. Mm-hmm. We want to look to get about 30 or 40 people on that list so we can close about 10% a month. So we're looking to bring in about 8 to 10 new members a month, mm-hmm. looking about a 20 to 30% close rate. Uh, we're going to have a number of people in our in our warm category. So our goal, again, is to move 20 to 30 percent them from warm to hot. So we're looking to close. We're looking to pull some people off our hot list, move from warm to hot. And then we've got our cold call list of you know 500 to 600 that we have to have always ready at the aim, depending on what, where we run into them, how we interact with them. So we're always looking to to have the numbers available to us. Mm-hmm. Do you have a full time salesperson, or is that you? That's a little bit of me, but no, I've got uh, I. I'm not the only salesperson. We we want to make everybody inside of our company available and smart enough to know how to sell our product. So even our education director knows how to sell ABC. Even our safety director knows how to sell ABC. Our administrative staff knows how to sell the value proposition. They're all trained and at the ready to repeat my value proposition. We help you win work, increase productivity, enhance your profitability. So how do you help them win work? Well, that's through advocacy, both public and private. The first thing is the merit shop, we're always fighting with that perception that the majority of the work is done by union companies. And the unions do a tremendous job of advocating for themselves, trying to close the marketplace. So they'll try to work with a legislature or an owner to convince them, you should make this union only. You remember the commercials back in the 60s Mm -hmm. and 70s, proudly display the union label. Well, back in the 50s and the 60s, the majority of construction work was union. It was union only. Well, now that has changed, and now the majority of people are merit shops. So we help people win work first by making sure they have the ability to bid a job because a lot of people are looking to close projects. The second thing we do is private advocacy. If you're one of my members and you're interested in working with another member or a prospective owner, you give me a call and tell me who those people are, I will call on your behalf because we carry the power of the association. So a lot of times, as an example, this River Downs Racino that's going to be built, we've torn down the old River Downs, a racetrack oh, yeah, in yeah. Cincinnati. We're going to be building a new one, all private money, no government money, private money. And so we immediately called. How big the, is that project in, in terms of dollars? Oh, it'll probably be a thirty to forty million dollar building. It's a very mm-hmm. nice size project. Are they putting a hotel there as well? Not that I know of. Not at this time. I mean, there'll be an entire development in and around it. Uh, but with the size of the Cincinnati Casino, which is you know the horse the is it a horseshoe? Yeah, the Horseshoe Casino, mm-hmm. it's a four hundred million dollar project downtown. The River Downs Racino is looking to build more of the the local action, not the traveler. I think they're trying to to build people. So if you don't want to go downtown, but you still want to have the excitement of a slot machine action and live horse racing, you would go to the River Downs Racino. So as an example, we called that general contractor to find out who they're interested in working with, what kind of trades, what kind of packages, and we've got an exclusive meet and greet set up for our members you know, weeks in advance of that project. So we'll be the first ones to have the plans, the first ones to introduce them. So it gives our gives our members a leg up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I would do in helping them win work. Did you do the same thing for the uh, Racino going in, in Lebanon? Yes, sir. Yeah, we did the same thing in Lebanon. We determined who the general contractor was. It's actually a member company out of the New York area. Mm-hmm. And so we called them up and said, obviously, you're not going to do all this work yourself. You're going to need subcontractors. You're going to need help knowing the lay of the land, knowing the elected officials. There's been a lot of work in the in the Warren County Commission on debating back and forth on location and, and how they're going to help the community. So those are things that we do from an advocacy standpoint. Even in the redevelopment of the old the old uh, racetrack in Lebanon. That's correct. 
a lot of work going on, and and those are the kind of that's how we get active and get involved because we we get the lay of the land on these projects long before the bid packages come out, and the nature of the construction industry on the commercial industrial side is all relationship based. It's every there's a lot of people who know the the what to know. It's the who to know. And that's the the nature of being part of an association because we help open those doors and introduce them to the people that they need to know. We also help our members win work by getting them to concentrate their sales and development efforts where they have a chance to win. Because in the the nature of a lot of industries, you can bid yourself right out of business. Mm -hmm. You can pursue all kinds of business that you're never going to have a chance to win. And a lot of times people get requests to bid a job knowing they have no chance to win it, yet they bid it anyway. Why? They like wasting materials, wasting their time. Wasting time. We like to say at Sandler, you know, if a bid package comes into the mail and you didn't know it was coming and you didn't write the spec, you now have less than a 5% chance of winning it. And your first assignment is to justify why we should take any effort other than to put it in the circular file. Absolutely. And there's a there's a big push in the in the commercial industrial contracting where they believe not only do you do yourself a disservice, you do your fellow contractors a disservice because you're just throwing a price out there that that other contractor might use to shop and beat up your other beat up your competitors. So there's mm-hmm. there's really well, there is a relationship. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's take a uh, another short uh, commercial break here, and uh, then we'll be right back with John Morris. Imagine you just left your prospect's office, and he now has your proposal, quote, or estimate. What do you suppose he's going to do with that valuable information that you just gave him for free? Call you tomorrow with an order? Get real! He's shopping it around to the competition. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Roth & Associates. I'm the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. I'm constantly amazed how salespeople operate. They believe a prospect asking for a proposal means the sale is as good as closed. Face it, trained prospects will turn you into an unpaid consultant. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, training, and challenging professionals who are 100% committed to long-term sales growth and profitability, no matter what it takes. If you're deadly serious about increasing sales, call me at 513-646-6523. Find out how Sandler Training can make you better, faster, and stronger. Or register now for our next open house, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. At the first sign of trouble, there are three types of business leader. The first type of leader is like a turtle. He pulls his head and tail in and hides in his shell. Turtles hunker down, just trying to survive. The second type of leader is an opportunist. They're like eagles. Eagles spread their wings and take advantage of the winds. They catch the storm wind and rise to new heights. The third group, between turtles and eagles, are called turkeys. Turkeys are average and anxious. They huddle together and move. They never saw. However, turkeys are easy prey for those who seize the opportunity and soar. If someone in your industry goes out of business, are you going to get the business? The question is, which type of leader are you? Will you seize the opportunities to take market share and grow, or will your fate be like the turkeys? If you're serious about growth, call me to arrange a confidential meeting, 513-646. 6523. Or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, John Morris. Uh, John, we have a theory of operation here that simple solutions to complex problems are invariably wrong. And therefore, if you want to solve a complex problem, you need to use a complex solution. Perhaps you could share with our listeners a complex problem that you encountered someplace in your career or where you are now in the Ohio Valley, uh, con- contractors and builders, and that solution might be applicable to other businesses. Yeah, one of the largest challenges I encountered when we came into Associated Builders and Contractors was a dated apprenticeship model, a training model. Basically, we have students who are employees of contractors who need knowledge, but Because of the economic downturn, we had contractors who had expanded their scope of operations. They're now sending their employees farther away than they had ever been before from that home base. Mm. Yet we were married to an old model that said every Monday and Wednesday night from 4 to 7 p.m., you have to come and sit in my classroom. That's the only way that you can advance in your career. And so the complex problem was we had contractors making tough decisions. Do I continue to dedicate myself to training? 
or do I give my employees an opportunity to earn a paycheck? Because if I send them out of town, they're going to miss class. Mm. And the model was built in a way that we couldn't make the simple solution. We couldn't just say, okay, well, you can skip class. Uh, that didn't work because then we would have to have three times, four times as many trainers needed to get people at all different levels. So we had to investigate new models of education, and that ultimately led us to an online model. But that in itself presented another challenge because we've got an entire industry who says, how, how in the world can you possibly train someone to be a skilled craftsman on a computer? These are guys who work with their hands. They're tactile learners. They want to build stuff. They don't mm-hmm. want to sit there and, and type away on a computer. Um, and the challenges are were, were more dynamic than we even thought because the assumption was a lot of these younger candidates, well, they know how to use computers. They're used to operating in an online environment. It's just not the case. They know how to use a cell phone. They know how to play games on Xbox. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they knew exactly how to navigate through an online curriculum and listen to an online lecture or use a video and know how to take good notes. Which uh, online learning model did you uh Adopt. Well, there's a uh, an, another organization called the uh, NCCR. You gotta love how we we sh- we sh- more sh- abbreviations. More abbreviations, which is the uh, National Construction Careers Education something or other. I'm getting it wrong, but it's a it's a group that came together. It's actually a, a combined effort of the merit shops and organized labor to create a curriculum for tre- teaching the trades. So both the unions and the merit shops use the same curriculum. And we come together. Yeah, it's a craftsman is a craftsman, a plumber is a plumber, and uh, same curriculum. The same curriculum for the most part. I mean, there's some specializations and there's some changes, but we've all come together to agree what a tradesman needs to know, what a what a level one versus a level four apprentice needs to be successful, and that curriculum changes on an annual basis. So basically, the merit shop and the unions got together and decided neither one of us should be in the curriculum business. We should put an independent organization in charge of that. And so we work with that organization. They actually saw the same challenges. They saw a reduction in the number of people taking their, using their curriculum. They were printing books and printing tests and mailing them out. And so they partnered with, you know, Pearson and McGraw-Hill and some of the professional organizations to create an online option. And we've been kind of cutting edge and we're one of the first chapters in the nation and one of the first um, regions that has dedicated itself to an online model. But then we found you can't just teach somebody only online. You still need to have that hands-on component uh, So we, because we used to merge them together. You came to class Monday and Wednesday night. Maybe one night you were doing technical training, getting a lecture, taking a test. Maybe the next night you were doing a hands-on project. Well, now we've taken the hands-on component out of that online technical training. We had to bring it back somehow. But we still had this challenge of having our employers sending our guys out of town all week. So right, we had right. to bring how it did, back. How did you bring that back we, hands on? We condensed it down and we really concentrated it. We focused it and we placed it and we asked for a larger block of time dedicated to a point in time that, that the contractor could plan for. So now we do our hands on training one Saturday a month for nine continuous months. Okay. For a full eight to ten hour day. And so guys are used to working eight to ten hour days, but now it's a Saturday. They can plan for it. They know right now that they need to be there on April 13th or June 27th or October 14th, whatever that day may be, and they plan for it. Much easier to schedule for, much easier to plan for, and it doesn't force the contractor to make a a bad decision. The bad decision being they either hurt their employee by missing out on an opportunity to make money or they hurt the employee by not giving him the training that he needs. So it was a, it was a complex problem and and took a lot of changing and we're still working through the kinks of it. Uh we're still finding things out. We we know we 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 went from a collegiate based model with an idea of online office hours that these each student has its own professor who could go and find the information. Uh, but if you give somebody the opportunity to procrastinate, well they're going to do it. So now we we have to do a little more hand holding and and we're continuously improving the model. At Sandler, uh, we we were for sales training and sales management training. Uh, we're now on our, I guess it's the fourth model, uh, and instead of reinventing the wheel again, uh, we simply uh, spent a million dollars and incorporated the cornerstone learning model, which allows for uh, courses, uh, live interaction. 
as well as testing and certification. And we're we're pushing through the first batch of uh, people now on sandal certification at what we call the bronze level. It'll be silver, gold, and one level above that. And that'll be in sales, sales management, uh, negotiating, customer service. So people have the ability to go through these, I'm going to call them courses, and then be certified by a certified instructor, in quotation marks, live. That's great. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, one of, the, one of the other challenges we faced in our business was we were trying to duplicate the old union model. Union, union apprenticeship was a pathway toward mm-hmm. a tradesman. Right. In the merit shop, there's a lot of cross-functionality. I mean, the essential union model says if you're a carpenter, you will only do carpenter tasks. Mm-hmm. You, if you're an electrician, you will only do the electrical tasks. And the inherent inefficiency in that model is that you're going to need two people to do what could be done by one person if he was cross-trained, or cross-disciplinary trained. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our member companies come to us and they said, I'm not interested in that that apprentice model you've always used. What I need is somebody who knows a little bit of carpentry, knows a little bit about plumbing, but knows a whole lot about operating these specific pieces of equipment. So through this learning management system, we can plug in different modules. We can grab pieces of the curriculum. And so now we find some of our employers are taking advantage of that opportunity, coming back to us and saying, all right, I'm going to create Joe's car, Joe's contracting level one, Joe's contracting level two, and it's a pathway to success in his company. If you want to do well at Joe's contracting, then he creates his own custom learning modules. I could never have done that with the old model, the butts and seats model, uh, because it'd be impossible to schedule. Now with the, the technology and the online system, it can work for all of us. Right. As long as you have that hands-on day at the back end for training or testing. Right. You, you have it covered. Got those modules there. But, you know, we're out there trying to sell a value proposition. I'm trying to sell a product. That product is membership in an organization. If I don't have a constantly evolving, you know, model, if I'm trying to say, hey, come to my membership, but you have to fit within the boundaries with which I'm going to say, you know, we're a specialized club and you have to be here every Tuesday night for a certain committee meeting, I'm just not going to grow under that model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh Kind of fits for one of the things that we're doing here uh, in Cincinnati. We're, I'm sponsoring the organization called Tip Club, and this is a organization dedicated to sharing leads and referrals amongst its members. Uh, but instead of using a rigid for rigid forum meetings once a week, and you must attend or you're out. Uh, the new model is going to be one meeting a month. That's great. I mean, we we do the same thing. You know, the nature of associations has changed, and there's all kind of literature on how the associations have to change and grow with them. I mean, you used to become part of an association because it was the only way you could network with other builders and contractors. Mm-hmm. There was no LinkedIn. There was no Internet, for that matter. So people came to our events because that's the only place they could see and interact with potential clients. So the the real service we provided was, hey, we were the country club for builders and contractors. But it's amazing how uh, poorly uh, most people use LinkedIn. We had a, a big LinkedIn class today. We'll have another one uh, tomorrow up in Columbus. Uh so even salespeople who are computer literate uh, have trouble using LinkedIn. And the good news or the bad news is LinkedIn has two more modules that they're going to be introducing this year, which will radically improve its usability for someone who is familiar with the new modules. Right. It's not just Facebook for business. Well, and a lot of people saw it as Facebook to business, and it was their race to get to 500 or 1,000 contacts. How can how can anybody manage five hundred to a thousand contacts? You gotta you gotta dive you gotta cut that list up. You gotta focus on who the real relationships are and what the real value there is. You know, I'm I run an association. I have three hundred members. I have less than three hundred contacts. I don't I don't have a LinkedIn contact with every one of my members if there's not a value for me to have them as a contact. If they're not using LinkedIn, I'm not gonna reach out and say, Hey, join me just to be part of my club. I want to use it as a as a management tool. I want to use it as a selling tool. The problem is you know you never know when you need them. Right. 
You never know when you need them. Uh, and some people will say maybe Google Circles or Google Plus is uh, half a step ahead of LinkedIn. Uh, my opinion is that LinkedIn is ahead of the game with their next level of tools. We're not going to talk about them here now, and if anyone is interested, they can talk to me offline about it. Um, what are the long-term, do you have a long-term strategic plan at the association? Absolutely. I mean, our goal is to continuously develop our value proposition, build off of what I said before. The first thing I tell anybody who wants to be a member or is a current member is I work for you. I mean, where else are you going to find full-time personnel and an entire staff of people? I mean, that's the value. That's the true value proposition of any of association is to see who's at your disposal and what can they do for you. So if you're a you know if you're a growing organization, if you're an organization interested in growth, you can go out there and hire a team of people for a fraction of the cost. And what you have to do is then hold that team accountable. So the first thing that I did when I came into this association was I wanted to make sure every member knew that I worked for them and that I was going to do what they asked of me. Now, you don't ask you know, your accountant to wash your car. So there are things we do and things we do really well. But you can ask of me what you'd like because I work for you. Mm-hmm. And so our goal is just continuously add to that value proposition. So we see strategic growth. We target specific geographic areas. We target specific uh, disciplines that we think we're light in. Ultimately, we don't want, you asked me earlier about market share, we don't want every merit shop contractor to be our member because we want to provide that value proposition. So we want to be strategic in who we bring on board. So I'll look at my, I'll subdivide my organization and I'll look and see how many subcontractors I have in roofing, how many subcontractors I have that are plumbers, that are electricians. If I'm heavy in one discipline, and I can't service them all by being a good advocate for them, then I'll look to pare that list down a little bit and grow in other areas. So our strategic growth model is to have a good cross-representation of the marketplace, somebody who can truly represent the industry. At some point in the future, when we get to a a large enough size, we'll subdivide and have different categories of membership. Uh, You know, some people who just want to join for a specific reason. In the past, People came to us for one of those three value propositions. They came to me because I had some great discount program that they wanted to get involved in. They came to me because they maybe needed my training program. They came to me maybe because they really liked what I did as an advocate for them. Now I have to make sure that I get them involved in all three pieces of the puzzle in some shape or form. What's an example of a discount program you have for your members? A great example, we have a fuel discount program. Uh, we get five. All of our members get five cents off every gallon of gasoline that they purchase. Doesn't sound like a lot, but our average member saves $120 a month. Uh, a fleet of vehicles could be my your own personal vehicle to an entire fleet, including diesel. In order to get a comparable discount, you would have to buy 50,000 50, gallons of gasoline per month. So just by coming in my association, so we have two members. Uh, or two people in the fleet program just inside my group. So myself and my membership director, we save on average 60 bucks a month just with that discount because we're driving so around is, all over. Does that require people like to only fill up at six gas stations or something? No, there's 22,000 stations that accept the card in this region, and it costs no. There's nothing for the. There's no fee for the card. It's just a regular credit card. Works out very nicely. Wow, that's great. That's just one simple example. We have all kinds of discounts on things that contractors pay for every day. So, again, we're trying to align ourselves with what our customers are spending money on. So we've got an alignment with an organization that offers drug tests and drug screens. We obviously want to have a safe, drug-free workplace. All of our contractors require them anyway, so we get them a discount on that. That's good. Our general contractors, there's new EPA regulations that requires them to have pollution prevention liability coverage. So we've negotiated with a national provider. That's that's even a hard one to think through. Uh, Pollution prevention liability insurance? This is insurance that says if you are working and building on a building, you're holding in a policy just in case while you're building that project, you discover something, you tap something, you set something aside, and it washes away. You know, so there's regulations now regarding you know topsoil removal. You know, if you know you go into a, a an ice flat piece of ground, you're going to dig down, put in a subfloor, put in a foundation. 
contractor is required to set that dirt aside and protect it and make sure it doesn't run off into a stream or run off into the sewer. And there's all kinds of regulations around it. This pollution prevention uh, adds to that protection of liability to say just in case something happens or they discover anything on that job site. Um, for the most part, it's it's a it's it's an interesting situation. That's one of the things we do. So from a regulatory standpoint, I would be fighting with regulators to not require that policy uh, because it, it does nothing to put a, put a burden on the contractor and raise the cost of the project for something that's really highly unlikely to happen. And if it were to happen, then it would be litigated in a way that the, the insurance program probably wouldn't help a whole heck of a lot anyway. Right. Um, Let's take a, uh, a short commercial break here. We haven't listened to a Sandler rule today, so let's listen to Sandler rule number 22. Hi, I'm Rich Gorman with Sandler rule number 22. Only give a presentation for the kill. A skilled hunter knows how to track his prey cautiously and patiently and waits for the exact moment to fire his shot. He waits to make sure that his prized target is lined squarely in the crosshairs of his scope before pulling the trigger. As salespeople, our process should be very similar. We have a responsibility to make sure we know exactly what that prospect's needs and wants are and how our product or service can fulfill them. We also need to know exactly how much the prospect is willing to commit in terms of time, resources, and money to solving their problem. And we need to know the decision-making process that the prospect is going to go through in order to evaluate our product. And probably most importantly, we need to let the prospect know that we expect a decision at the end of our presentation. Only once we have a fully qualified prospect do we fire our kill shot and deliver the presentation. I'm Rich Gorman with Sandler Rule number 22. Only give a presentation for the kill. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with John Morris. John, you've had a lot of uh, management positions, a lot of your own companies. So I'm going to change the subject a little bit here. Uh, maybe you can give other CEOs, other leaders in our listening audience, a leadership tip or two. The leadership tip I always give is to always stay and be strategic. You've got to know whatever you're working on, how it fits in the picture, and you need to make sure that you don't take advantage of the idea that everyone who works for you in and around you also sees that same vision. You need to be strategic, but you also need to be visionary, and you need to share upon that vision and understand that a lot of times what is very, very clear to you is not necessarily going to be clear to the people you work with, the people you work for, and or the people who you hope to want to work with, the people you want to sell to. So being visionary and being strategic is the key, but also know when and how often you need to share it and reiterate it. Because probably within a, your own mind, you know, the vision is very clear. It's crystal clear. I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know how quickly I'm going to get there. Don't assume the people around you share upon that vision. And we don't take the time to educate our people why that's the right decision. Here with Inside Associated Builders and Contractors, we we had a, a very profitable and lucrative uh, piece of business. But looking at it from an analysis, we had great growth potential in another area. It made better sense for us to stop doing one thing so that we could dedicate more time to the other. But it was a real step to some of my people when I told them, we're not going to do that anymore. What did you actually discontinue? Well, it was a, it was. We have 1,100 trainers who work for us as uh, OSHA certified trainers, mm. and obviously, with that level of training available to us, we could go out and sell training services all we want mm -hmm. uh, because we've got literally capacity to train in every different industry: general industry, healthcare, construction, you name it. If you've got a safety related issue, I've got a trainer who can help your company. That's great. But we were going out and knocking on everyone's door. Hey, do you need safety training? Hey, do you need safety training? 
they weren't actually my employees. They were other people that I had to contract with. So I was independent doing contractors. independent contractors on a markup. And so literally, the world is our oyster. Anyone could potentially buy this. We had the power of OSHA being a part of our organization, so mm-hmm. that opened a lot of doors. But as you just heard, a lot of problems, sure. Yeah, as you just heard in Sandler Tip 22, we were pr- doing a lot of presentations, but we were not killing a lot of jobs, and we had people who were not really great trained salespeople, didn't know these industries as well because it wasn't their specialty. They were basically selling for someone else, mm-hmm. and they were competing with these exact same individuals. So I was trying to sell someone else's training who was trying to sell their own training to the same customer. So if half the time we would lose the business, we would lose it to people we had trained. Uh, it just wasn't a great model. It didn't make sense for us to dedicate a lot of energy, but we had a lot of contacts. We had a lot of ongoing customers, but I, I just made the decision we can grow where we can uh, manage the process much better. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, many years ago now, we, we in my company here at Sandler Training, we got out of selling CRM Uh don't give me abbreviations now, Mike. Customer relationship management. We had sold Goldmine software right. uh, in companies I owned back in California, and I brought that with me when I came to Cincinnati in 92. And by 2000, I recognized that it was counterproductive. Every place that we sold sales training, many of them we sold Goldmine software for CRM. worked well. But places where we sold CRM software first, we never sold sales training. Right. And margins were so radically different, and the desire and strategic direction was to go in the the Sandler sales training mode that by 2000, we just canceled that whole line of of sales. And uh, it was amazing to me that I think only one one person on the team stayed with me on the new direction. The others just said, we're done. Right. I said, that's fine. <laughs> well, and that's the nature of what we had to identify because we were, we were creating a market. Mm-hmm. We were going in and doing all of the legwork to convince a customer that they needed what we had. But ultimately, we didn't view the economic situation enough to recognize that there's very few people that are just going to cut off and sign off right with us right away. They're going to want to see that what we're selling is legitimate. They're going to see that what we're selling, and so they're going to want to check some references. They're going to want to make some calls. It was it was a real hard sell for somebody uh, to get them to do it without getting any other quotes. And when they quoted, they shopped us, we were always high because we were marking up somebody else's business. Mm-hmm. We didn't control our own training. Well, that, you needed Sandler training to go into a one-quote closed business. That's right. That, that would have solved the whole problem. Uh, perhaps, perhaps not. Um, are you going to be adding any people to your organization this year? We hope to. We we know that we're, we're going to be expanding. We know that we're going to be growing. And that's one of my messages to the contracting community is when I grow that base of membership, that provides me with the opportunity to add more people in these advocacy positions to help mm-hmm. them win more work. As an example, we were unsuccessful in an advocacy effort in Lewis, in uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. The uh, former mayor of Lawrenceburg, Indiana, uh, was a, an elected official. At one point in time in his career, he was a registered business agent for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And so when he became a position of power in Lawrenceburg and they were going to build a multi-million dollar event casino uh, addition, uh, basically a convention center. He wrote an agreement between the city and the electrical workers that only union electrical workers would be able to bid that job. I found out about it a little late. Once I informed other members of city council in Lawrenceburg, they stepped up and were, were very disappointed in what the mayor had done, but the deed was done. The requirement had been signed, and 86% of the marketplace didn't get to bid on that job. And one of the questions that was continuously asked of me is, hey, why did you come here so late? You know, we were talking about this project for four or five months before you came in and, and asked, started asking these questions. Well, I'm working with similar challenges in Cincinnati and in Dayton and in Lima and other facilities. There's only so much of us to get around. So a larger association can serve the needs of more members. Unfortunately, we, we didn't win that one. 
but we're working real hard in Cincinnati City Council right now to make sure that there's some fair contracting laws because there's going to be about $4 billion worth of sewer work over the next 10 years. And there was an effort there to close that work out. Um, Are they going to try and replace the wooden pipes? <laughs> no, they're going to leave the wood ones in place, you know. Just need to shine them up a little bit. No, we've got a complete revamp. Actually, Cincinnati is a community where the uh, the stormwater and the sewage system combine, and uh, the EPA has come in and ruled that to be uh, not uh, a good condition. And so we're going to spend billions of dollars creating two separate systems to separate stormwater from sewage because uh, right now they're combined in most of Cincinnati because we've got an old system. And we were able to exist as a community for a long time under the old rules and got grandfathered and we got a pass here or there. Well, now the EPA has come in and said, no more. You shall have two separate systems. Now, is that Hamilton County or the city of Cincinnati? It's Hamilton County Municipal city Sewer District. So it's the entire greater Cincinnati metropolitan area. It's Hamilton County. But the city has run the county's municipal water system since 1968. So right now, city council controls a decision for a Hamilton County asset. It's an interesting dynamic. Well, that's a problem. I guess they're going to have to move the sewer pipes <laughs> after they put the, the streetcar in above them. That's right. Oh, boy. Sounds like a another debacle waiting to happen. Constant challenges. That's why you pay. That's why you join an association for folks like me that I get to waste my time in a lot of those meetings. So you can go out there and continue to sell and grow your business and make a couple bucks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You might want to think about the commercial building and constructing industry because we're looking for great salespeople because it's now gone. One of those opportunities that most good salespeople who are looking for an opportunity would choose to pass on. Right. But it's a great marketplace. And you're talking about... You know, high uh, high volume, good work when you can bridge those those relationships. People will work together for a long time. And that's what's had to change in our industry because some of those businesses didn't survive the downturn. A lot of those relationships didn't survive. And or they cut the point down where I can't survive just on one relationship. So I need to have three or four others, but I don't have a sales process in place. I've never had to sell my business before. All I did have to send out a price. Uh, well, we're going to change that for you. We're doing a uh, a sales uh, one-day program for you in September, isn't it? Yep. We're looking forward to it. You know, we've created the ABC Leaders Program. It's for the next generation of construction leaders, and we're very proud to be partnering with Sandler to, to help bring that development piece to the puzzle because you're not going to survive in the commercial construction industry if you don't know how to develop a relationships and have real strong techniques. Nope. That's going to be a full one-day program, and we're going to take people through the development of the Sandler Selling System, how to apply it to build relationships, how to ask questions, um, how to get budgets, and how to close business. And that's going to be a tall order for a one-day program. We're not going to cover everything in Sandler, but we're certainly going to give your members who choose to attend a Hell of a strong day. Right. And, you know, we think the first thing, the, and one of the reasons we're excited about this is the was first. September 11th, I remember? Uh, it could be. 9-11, not a, not a great day to remember, but a good day. Not to, a great day to remember, right. But a good day for training. And we're excited about the, the scope of the program because we think the first thing that people have to recognize is what they don't know. And a good day of breadth of topic, teaching people all the different things that they need to know more about, We'll teach them the value of the Sandler method and why they need to invest more energy in business and development. And it's not just a matter of throwing bad techniques out there again and again. Bidding more and more and more and more projects is not going to grow your business. It's September 12th. Well, that's even that's better. That's a be better day. Had a, I had to go look that up, John. <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe we did it on September 11th. Well, I think I've got something else going on on September 11th. Okay. Uh, I think we've covered more topics, areas than I originally planned today. It's been an interesting show. John, I want to thank you uh, for being here. And I'm going to be giving you a copy of one of Sandler's new books called The 49 Sandler Rules. It's right there over your left shoulder if you want to pick it up. i got to tell book. you, I've already got a copy. I've read it. I love it. Oh, you've read the, you read a copy of that one? Then 
I'm going to give you a copy of the new one. The 11 Sandler Success Principles and Corollaries that is the follow-up book behind the 49. Well, then I'll take that one. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Great read. It was released about a year ago. Went to number one on the Amazon bestsellers list. There will be a a new Sandler book well before September, maybe two. Uh, One of them will be on complex selling and how to use the Sandler system in a complex, long-term selling situation. Many people get confused and think that Sandler is a transactional, one-call, closed system. Nothing could be further from the truth. But we're going to be putting a book out on the theoretical basis for which more Sandler training is going to be coming. Excellent. Good. John, thanks again for being here with us today. And uh, Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.